Somewhere in Des Moines or San Antonio, there's a young gay person who all of a sudden realizes that she or he is gay, knows that if the parents find out, they'll be tossed out of the house. The classmates would taunt the child, and the Anita Bryans and John Briggs are doing their bit on TV, and that child had several options. Staying in a closet, suicide, and then one day that child might open a paper and it says homosexual elected in San Francisco and there are two new options. The option is to go to California. <laughs> stay in San Antonio and fight. Two days after I was elected, I got a phone call and the voice was quite young. It was from Altoona, Pennsylvania. And the person said, thanks. And you've got to elect gay people so that that young child and the thousands upon thousands like that child know that there's hope for a better world. There's hope for a better tomorrow. Without hope, not only gays, but those blacks and the Asians and the disabled and the seniors, the us's, the us's without hope yeses give up. I know that you cannot live on hope alone, but without it, life is not worth living. And you, and you, and you, you've got to give them hope. Thank you very much. Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah! Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Sarah Germaine Lilly, and I'm your host for today's show, Harvey Milk Day 2, White Male Tears. Our team is so excited to be bringing you this show today. Harvey is loved and revered by so many, and his vision of a just community where everyone has a voice has inspired us since the 70s. You'll hear activists and writers today share their own inspiring stories and comment on the way Harvey's tragic death galvanized the gay rights movement and revealed a rift in our justice system. On our show today, special guest, California elected official and author, Tom Amiano, our very special guest, professor of LBGTQ studies, writer Lillian Faderman, and Gays Against Guns activists, J.W. Walker, Sean Stefanik, Libby Edwards, and Shep Wannan. And to make this show even sweeter, We'll ask you to show your support for WBAI and share cool gifts for theater and entertainment and great books for you and for the activists in your life in this giving season. Let's kick this off by mentioning that today we have access to some wonderful premiums. You can make a contribution today to WBAI, support Free Speech Radio, Guarantee that you're going to have access to this show and to the other wonderful content that you hear on WBAI.org. 
You can have all of that and this special radio gag package, The Pronoun Lowdown. This is a great book for teens. This is a great book for teachers, for anyone who works with young people about transgender pronouns, history, and self-affirmation. And whose right is it? The Second Amendment and the Fight Over Guns by Hannah Baramovich. And that book is good for high school through college and even adults for explaining the history of the Second Amendment and where we are today. And Grace Will Lead Us Home by Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Barry Haas. This inspiring book is about the Charleston shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And Jennifer becomes very close to the victims' families and talks about how gun violence impacts the whole community. You can have these three books for a pledge of $100. When you pledge $100, a one-time gift to WBAI, we will send you Nivozizan, The Pronoun Lowdown, The Second Amendment and the Fight Over Guns by Hannah Baramovich, and Grace Will Lead Us Home by Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Barry Haas. So call 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org. That's right, call 212-209-2950 or give to wbai.org to make your $100 pledge and receive your book package. Now, if you have plenty of books on your shelves, I'm telling you what you want to do is become a radio gag. BAI Buddy. A BAI Buddy gives a small amount each month to support our commercial-free community radio, WBAI, and especially to support gay rights and gun violence prevention by becoming a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. So call today, 212-209-2950. Or again, you can go to give2wbai.org and just click BAI Buddy, and check off Radio Gag. Look, if you're listening now, chances are you love this station and chances are that you love hearing Radio Gag. So, you know, it's time to uh, put the pedal to the metal right now. Pick up the phone and call 212-209-2950 or give to WBAI.org. So you're calling, right? I know you're calling right now. 212-209-2950. And I gotta tell you, we have a special surprise for you. We have $20 in uh, food and drink for Pangea Cabaret. So that covers your minimum for any show that you want to see at Pangea on the Lower East Side, right there on 2nd Avenue. You can go and see the show, and your food and drink is on us. And this is especially from me and Libby Edwards. And to the next WBAI buddy, well, that first food and drink offer, that is for the first BAI buddy that we get. For the second BAI buddy that we get, this show, 
We have tickets to the new group, the show Black No More. So give a call and become a BAI buddy today. Thanks. So right now we have a conversation with Jay Walker, myself, Sarah Germaine Lilly, and Sean Stefanik, three activists in one room on why we love Harvey and why did his killer Dan White get away with murder. Let's listen. Welcome listeners. I'm here with Sean Stefanik and J.W. Walker, and we are in a conversation about Harvey Milk, his life and his death. Why don't we start with um, why has Harvey become so revered, so loved by us and then the gay community and the world? Harvey was a, a trailblazer. You know, he, he, he upset the apple cart. He changed the, the paradigm in politics as far as the acceptability of a, an, you know, an out and unashamed and out and proud gay person, um, you know, holding elected office. You know, Harvey was elected into office, you know, about 20 years or so after the end of World War II. And it's, it's, it's when San Francisco, when the gay population of San Francisco really began to kind of coalesce where, you know, and, and as that, as their numbers grew, began to assert themselves. And, you know, as in everything, whenever a quote unquote despised minority begins to assert themselves, there's always backlash, right? And in the case of San Francisco, it was the police force, right? You know, the police force, you know, which is, you know, ostensibly straight white men, Mm-hmm. Uh, having a backlash uh, against, you know, anything that sort of supplants their authority at being on the top of the food chain. And, you know, in Dan White, you see that same backlash being um, acted out, you know, in his in his murder of, 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 of Harvey Milk and, and, and uh, George Moscone. Uh, yeah, absolutely. When when you go back and you think, if I, if I may chime in to say about about specifically those times, and you think about how much has changed specifically in the last twenty years, and I think in you know especially with all the celebration that we get caught up in all of that, that we tend to forget where we've been, such as the case with Harvey Milk, when you had this out gay man who unabashedly and very proudly and bravely ran for and was elected into office, and further kicking down the the, the glass door that society had on our community, and really just setting the good example that we needed to set you know someone who was there physically there and physically made it okay for more people to do the same and then you add out gay lawyers and you know over the years you know it starts to happen it didn't happen overnight you know like Pantene Provi it didn't happen overnight but it did happen so you know it's a very important uh, message and he and he did so with so much like because of love like love was clearly what one of his driving factors was when he decided to take on the task of of bearing all that so so absolutely he is both a figure both revered and loved you know and i i am thinking of how the story of his assassination uh became part of the story of his life with the 
community coming to life and with the backlash to the backlash, the white knight riots, uh, and how that is such a pivotal point again in the history of gay activism, gay rights. Well, there- yeah, yeah. I mean, and you see that in Stonewall as well. You, you know, you saw that in in so many points throughout the civil rights movement as well, where you have this initial uh, this initial backlash for you know in favor of the status quo. You know, the truth is with with human rights movements, with civil rights movements, once they have truly coalesced and and once people who are in a place of uh, being dis- disenfranchised or uh, marginalized, once they coalesce and recognize their power, power of working in coalition, the power of 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 working together um, uh, in, in in community, the backlashes don't really work. They end up strengthening whatever movement they're attempting to uh, push back on. I mean, I, let me give you a little, uh, you guys a little context too, because you already probably heard my story. But I was living in San Francisco in 1978. I was a student at UC Berkeley. 1978, I was convinced I I was struck by the curse of King Tut because King Tut was being exhibited at the San Francisco Museum. I got in a terrible life-changing car accident. I got a great apartment in San Francisco and I was commuting back and forth uh, to uh, Berkeley at the time that this happened. Jonestown, I read about Jonestown while I was in a bakery having a cup of coffee and uh, the city was reeling and it it was horrifying. Uh, but it was a community impact. And then our mayor and our city council person killed by this horrible guy just walking into City Hall with a gun, gunning them down. I said, what is this? Is this the Wild West? What is this? And I remember one night when the, when the verdict was announced and I couldn't get home because they were rioting and we watched the riots on uh, on television and saw them at City Hall turning over police cars and so you know I I'm still I'm still angry about that about Dan White's sentence 7 years served 5 killed himself 2 years later uh, the fact that it was revealed by one of the officers who he turned himself into that he confessed that he was going to kill four people that day and he brought the extra ammunition so why did this murderer get off with such a light sentence you know i think that we're a very different situation obviously but we're kind of going through that with Kyle rittenhouse right now why did this murderer end up you know being found not guilty you know for so many of us certainly those of us who are in the the gun violence prevention movement particularly the fact that this teenager took it upon himself to go to another state another city he wasn't part of the community had no community connections and decided to appoint himself the protector of this community you know with a military style assault rifle you know and and how the justice system just the the judge on the case uh, continually uh, bent his rulings to favor this kid. We've seen that a lot lately with young white males, with the justice system just sort of bending over backwards 
to protect them. And it's always in situations where they are victimizing people who are culturally or racially or historically marginalized. We saw it in in the case of Ahmad or Arbery at the beginning, you know, the, the, the cops on the scene and the, um, the, the prosecution team in the, in the city initially chose not to arrest them, not to charge them, not to call the grand jury, not to do anything at all, just to sort of accept what these guys said as, you know, as, as reality uh, without any challenge. So, you know, this is, this is, you know, part and parcel of the history of this country. Um, you know, it is our, our justice system is set up to protect a certain population. And I actually have something to say, too, about the white male tears, uh, the difference um, in the cases between Ahmaud Arbery and Matthew Shepard. And Dan White and the uh, little Rittenhouse twerp is that uh, the, 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 the case is being that in Dan White and Rittenhouse, there's this like victimization that they're also presenting to the uh, rather rigged system at hand. So. Exactly. It's already set up. It's already set up to protect them. So it doesn't take very much for the different the people in control of the different levers to react to their own statement of their own victimization. Kyle's tears, Dan's, you know, oh, I was diminished capacity. Oh, I'm breaking. Oh, I'm, you know, you know, uh, I, I was just so threatened by the world changing around me that, you know, the jurors are crying in reaction to it. Well, and so are we, and hopefully our work is going to result in less tears, less gun violence, less injuries and deaths this year. So we'll be seeing you soon. And thanks for joining us on Radio Gag. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sean. You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show, here on listener-sponsored commercial-free radio, WBAI. We are here every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. And today, 12 7, 21, at 2 p.m., bringing you the latest in gun violence prevention movement news. Now, next up, we have a special guest, Tom Amiano, gay rights activist, retired California state official, and stand-up comedian <laughs> and author. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Radio Gag, WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Libby Edwards, and Sarah Lilly is with us, and our guest, Tom Amiano from San Francisco. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. Tom, could you tell everyone how you know Harvey and what your relationship to his work has been? Yes, uh, I, I, I knew Harvey initially 
uh, meeting him on Castro Street. Uh, you know, we're both from the Northeast and uh, he was around. He used to like to le uh, leaflet. He organized a boycott of stores that were very homophobic, but uh, uh, making good money on, uh, on the gay patronage in, in the neighborhood. And when he put their names and numbers up uh, all over the Castro Street, uh, people stopped going to them. And within two days, they became like the biggest proponents of gay rights. They hired drag queens. They said their uncle was gay. They, you know, it was <laughs> so through that context is, is how I uh, knew him. And then, you know, of course, we worked on his various um, campaigns. Thanks. Can you tell us, Tom, about the fight against uh, Prop 6 and the Briggs Initiative? That was very, very transformative. Actually, I think the right and the left did, did learn a lot. So in a nutshell, uh, we have an initiative process in California and Senator Briggs got enough signatures to put on an issue that said nobody who was gay uh, could teach school. And if you knew somebody was gay and you didn't, you could also be fired. It was pretty draconian. And Harvey became a spokes, the, the spokesperson for the LGBT community, as well as a great contributor, uh, Sally Gerhardt. So she and he, as they used to say, were the mom and pop. And they took on the nutty guy, Senator Briggs, and the right-wing pastors in debates, very uh, transformative, you know, to gay adults taking on the right wing, the ministry. I mean, it was very inspiring for, for all of us. And I think uh, both of them, of course, carved their uh, positions out in LGBT history, but bigger than that. Both of them always connected the dots to other social justice issues. I think that was the secret of uh, Harvey's success. We all know that Harvey and Mayor Moscone were assassinated by Dan White, and each individual was killed by multiple shots. However, he was not charged with first-degree murder, and he was not convicted of first-degree murder. Can you tell us how you responded to the jury's- I'm feeling it right now. defense and the diminished capacity? I yeah, believe. it was such bullshit. Part of us knew, anticipated, because, you know, when you looked at the history, we never did get a fair shake anyway. And criminal justice had a long way to, to go. So here was a guy who was a cop, Dan White, and he fit the gestalt. He was Irish, he was Catholic wasn't too bright. He had been in the military, then he had been in a uh, fireman, and now he was a cop with a made-up story of some kind of heroism. We saw through the jury selection that anyone who we felt was, you know, was gay or identified gay or of color were summarily dismissed. So the, the jury not only was all white and all heterosexual in appearance and <laughs> presentation. And um, I would say moderate to conservative people. So the way it came down, the cops were very, very uh, pro Dan White. There were cops who were uh, cops for Christ was a real thing in San Francisco. Uh, they, they put out buttons that said that Dan White was right. I mean, this was ugly. So the criminal justice system was rigged. Our DA at the time 
was very weak. He presented a very weak case. The uh, lawyer who uh, defended Dan White was every kind of stereotypic kind of slime, twisting things, uh, being smug. They played Dan White's tape of how he murdered these two people without any remorse. And then he's crying and it's confusing. What the hell is he crying about? And then I said, Harvey, I can't. I mean, the recounting is chilling. Some of them cried. Harvey Milk got shot three times. He was alive and saw the last two coming. But yet these people cried and they weren't crying for Harvey Milk or George Moscone. They were crying for Dan White. They pulled this one defense that it's kind of a misconception. A term associated with all this was called the Twinkie defense. But actually that was never presented or said in the jury, those words. The media made those words up. The Twinkie defense is I ate Twinkies and I murdered two men in cold blood. The jury was given certain directions. You know, it's very similar to Rittenhouse and uh, some of the other. Who writes the laws that the jury has to follow? People who can benefit like damn white, ruling class white men mostly. So they came up with the most minimum uh, of uh, charges uh, and uh, the town went wild. There was no internet. You didn't need it. You heard the roar. And um, the uh, center, the locust was Castro Street, which seemed obvious. And it was on fire, not literally, but it could have been, it was electric. The crowd got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So someone started a chant, uh, City Hall. And so that became the mantra, City Hall, City Hall, City Hall. And the uh, crowd grew and grew and grew and became angrier and angrier and angrier. I don't really know where everybody came from because obviously not everybody there was gay, but they were fed up with the injustice of the of, of the thing. I think it was symbolic of, for, uh, to a lot of people, not just gay people. And so now in popular culture, that's called a riot. I don't know <laughs> if that was a riot, fine. I literally was electrified by it. Well, I, I just loved it. You know, you were fighting back it. And the only thing, you know, the only thing that got damaged was, you know, the property, you know. Like I said, you can replace a glass door. You can't replace Harvey. I mean, this guy snuck into a into a, a, a window. back window with two guns loaded. Jesus. So um, the reaction was more than justified. Um, I will give credit, oddly, to the police chief of that day. The rank and file did not like him. He was a little too liberal for them. And um, there had been some issues, but he kept the uh, rank and file from shooting, basically. What all the finite things are, I don't know. So there was a reaction to that in the Castro district uh, from the mission station. Some, I call them road cops, pretended they didn't hear that or whatever, just to, and they came to the Castro district and beat the shit out of people who weren't even at the riot. The long run of that is though, uh, people took over the streets and there's a wonderful thing in the movie of everyone joined across the street, pushing back the cops, but they were on orders not to shoot. And for better or for worse, 
no matter what people think of the police, I get it. Let's defund them. Um, that order, I think, saved uh, some lives. And um, the result of the trial stuck in people's craw uh, and the uh, gay community and its allies tried to do as best with police reform uh, as possible and gun control, even Diane Feinstein, you know, God rest her, she's not gone yet. Um, even Diane Feinstein, you know, is still fighting that battle of the of assault weapons. So um, that's it. And anybody who lived it can tell you um, what a deeply transformative time, time it was. Uh, I think it was probably one of the most significant things in my life right after AIDS uh, in terms of impact. Then, you know, to live this long and to see it still happening, you know, that's a lesson for us. Uh, you know, we're finite, but I think what we're fighting for is not. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, listen, I appreciate the outreach. And we are telling our listeners that for a donation to WBAI, we are offering as a promotion a copy of Tom's book, Kiss My Gay Ass. <laughs> So, Tom, would you tell us a little bit about your book? Well, yes. You know, uh, I've had a pretty active life uh, here in San Francisco, a school teacher, an activist, a stand-up comic, a member of the Board of Education, Board of Supervisors, and then on the Assembly. Uh, I almost made it to Pope, but I couldn't convince the Cardinals. Um, and people have urged uh, to, to uh, put that down, that history. And as one gets older one reads other people's histories and you go, I don't think it happened that way. So putting your own lens on uh, shared and shared, you know, shared occurrences and opportunities. Um, uh, so some friends, uh, we, we did it as a conversation, which was easier for me. And then it was transcribed and edited it. And so basically uh, within it is a history of, uh, LGBT history in, in San Francisco and the insides of, of the comedy world and uh, the insides particularly of, uh, of politics uh, and, and some biographical uh, uh, issues with me and I'm, my time in Vietnam. And um, uh, uh, people have said it's fairly entertaining and that's great. Uh, and people have also said, gee, I didn't know that happened. And I, that's the best thing. Because, you know, when people are informed, doesn't mean that they're still not going to be jerks, <laughs> but at least they'll be informed. Um, so uh, that's it. And it got nice reviews and and good play. And uh, I'm very happy I did it. And uh, we're probably going to attempt to do make a digital version since we're going to be pretty soon out of uh, the hard copies. And then uh, uh, do an audio. Uh, and uh, that, that'll be it. That'll be my uh, fourth grandchild. <laughs> okay, listeners, now it's time to get serious, really serious, because how many people do you know who need to have a copy of Tom's book, Kiss My Gay Ass? I know, 
I know you do. I know you know people. I'm telling you. So, um, and this is unbelievable. But today, by being a listener to our show, you can pledge just $25, just $25, a one-time pledge to WBAI, and you can receive a copy of Tom's book, Kiss My Gay Ass. Now, the copies are extremely limited. I am not going to promise how many we can get, but if you call right now, 212-209-2950, that's 212-209-2950, or you go to give to WBAI.org, 212-209-2950, or give numeral to WBAI.org. You enter your pledge amount of $25, Tom's book is going to pop up. Or you can just type in, kiss my gay ass, like I did, and (laughs) you will see the book pop up. So listen, have some fun this holiday season, get a book for your friend, and mostly give a contribution to commercial-free community radio, WBAI. And thank you. Welcome back, listeners. I know you know that we have an amazing team here at Radio Gag. And Shep Wannan, he is able to get the most amazing guests. And next up, we have Dr. and Professor Lillian Faderman, noted author, sometimes called the mother of LBGTQ studies, Her books are wonderful. Her magazine articles are terrific. And we have an interview with her about her new book on Harvey Milk. So listen up. Thanks, Shep. Hi, I'm Shep uh, from Gays Against Guns. And today we're um, honoring Harvey Milk. And I have here Lillian Faderman, friend, and uh, she just uh, published a new book, Harvey Milk, His Lives and Death. So Lillian, my first question is, what inspired you to write the book? Well, I've I've written about Harvey before. In uh, my book, The Gay Revolution, I spent about 20 pages on him. I became fascinated by Harvey when I um, first read uh, in 1999, a Time magazine article that named him among the 100 most influential personalities worldwide of the 20th century. He was um, in a a section called um, uh, Icons, and he was together with uh, Anne Frank and uh, Sister Teresa. (laughs) He would have loved that one. (laughs) I I thought that uh, this is... Uh, fascinating because he was the only out gay person on that list of 100 people. I was very interested in the fact that 
he has been compared to Martin Luther King for the uh, what had been called the gay community, what we would now call the LGBTQ community. Um, there were two Academy Award winning films about him. Uh, more recently, of course, the Sean Penn film Milk, which was wonderful. Sean Penn really was Harvey Milk in that film. And the more I studied him, the more I realized how important he was to the progress of gay rights in the gay community. Lillian, as, as you know, maybe others know, uh, this is around the time of uh, Harvey Milk's yard site. He's been dead 43 years. Yard site, for those who don't know, is in the Jewish religion, the anniversary of one's death. So to that, I want to ask you, to what extent did his Jewishness play in his activism? The book that I wrote about Harvey was written for Yale University Press's uh, Jewish Lives series. And as I discovered in my research, his Jewish background was huge in his activism, not only through the influence of his grandfather, who was an immigrant from a shtetl in Lithuania, who managed to become very successful and founded the first synagogue in Woodmere, Long Island, where Harvey was born and grew up. He really learned tikkun olam, uh, that is the, the obligation to help repair the world from his mother who actually died of a heart attack in her early 60s, delivering a Thanksgiving turkey to a settlement house so people who wouldn't otherwise have Thanksgiving dinner would have dinner there. Uh, so I, I think he, he learned from his grandfather and he learned from his mother the obligation to help repair the world. And that became very important in his politics. He was also very influenced by the story of the Holocaust. His um, bar mitzvah was two weeks uh, after the fall of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, he claimed always afterwards that that ignited him as, as a political person, that um, his parents had said about the resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto, if something that terrible happens, you, you can't just take it, you have to fight back. You have to uh, learn to defend yourself. And, and I think he used that as, as his own mantra that gay people had to fight back against the persecution against them. Not that it was comparable to what happened in Hitler's Europe, of course, but he, he used it as a trope. It became a metaphor for him. I, I discovered in uh, many of his speeches, he, he warned gays of, of a Holocaust unless they organized, unless they fought. And so he was very aware of it in, in that sense. He was also aware of being Jewish um, culturally. <laughs> I, I interviewed one woman who had been a, a patron at uh, Castro Camera, and she told me that um, his bar mitzvah picture was hanging on the wall at Castro Camera. <laughs> 
And I, I interviewed other people uh, who said he, he would love Yiddishkeit. He would love to, to speak in uh, just little Yiddish phrases, or he, he loved corned beef and um, uh, or pastrami sandwiches and uh, chopped liver with coleslaw, they told me. <laughs> And he, he would frequently announce himself um, when he was running for office and when he uh, won office as a New York Jew. He was very proud of being a New York Jew. Um, so I, I think both culturally and spiritually or uh, morally, he, he was very aware of his Jewish background. And it, it was a large part of who Harvey Milk was. Lillian, I was living in San Francisco in 1978, and I was a student at Berkeley, and I remember vividly Jonestown, the city, the aftermath, and then a couple months later, uh, learning that our mayor and Harvey Milk were gunned down. And that was devastating enough. Market Street was draped in invisible black, but then the trial for a young person i think that this was a pivotal moment for me seeing that there was seemingly no justice for this devastating crime uh, what was your view on dan white's trial yeah you know just before the uh the double murder the voters of california had passed proposition seven Proposition 7 reaffirmed the death penalty and said that it was mandatory in the case of um, multiple murders and in the case of an assassination of a public official. Well, Dan White had committed both multiple murders. He killed two people and the two people were public officials. And so everyone was certain that that he would be given the death penalty, regardless of people's feelings about the death penalty. They were certain that that, that would happen. The uh, district attorney decided he needed to recuse himself because he knew all of the principals. He knew uh, Dan White, he knew the mayor, and he knew Harvey Milk. And so the assistant district attorney took over. And I fear he absolutely botched it. Um, he would, uh, in his peremptory challenges to prospective jurors, he would ask questions such as, um, are you opposed to the death penalty? Because he wanted to ask for the death penalty. Well, of course, all the liberals said, yes, I'm opposed to the death penalty. It was the conservatives who said, no, I'm not opposed. And so the jury was made up of 12 conservatives who claimed they weren't opposed to the death penalty. The, um, the defense attorneys were much smarter. For instance, in their peremptory challenges, they um, interviewed one young man who said that his father was a police officer. So they thought that was really good. They, they would certainly select him for the jury. Um, then they said, are you married? And he said, no, uh, but I'm living with someone. And they said, who is she? And he said, he is. And that was the end of him. <laughs> they, were, they were clever in who they selected for the jury. And so the jury ended up being 12 uh, white people, seven women and five men 
almost all of them from Dan White's background, that is a lower middle class or working class. And the, um, I, I think the defense attorneys were very clever too in that they had Dan White's wife sitting in the courtroom. Here's this young couple looking devastated, very clean cut, very quote, all American, whatever that meant in 1978. Um, the prosecutor screwed up again by, by playing Dan White's confession in, uh, he, he went to a police station where he, he had been a police officer himself and his buddy was the head at that police station and he gave his confession to his buddy. And he, he sounded like Huckleberry Finn, just this all American boy who didn't mean to do anything wrong and um, who was just so confused and um, had been so upset because of what was happening in San Francisco and was also so upset because he, he uh, had worked so hard to get his uh, position as a supervisor. And, and uh, then he discovered he wasn't going to be reinstated after his resignation. I understand that the jurors were weeping. <laughs> this was supposed to be the confession that made the jurors understand that he was guilty. And instead it was a confession that, that put them on Dan White's side. And so it was a, a real travesty of, of justice. And I think it was largely because the defense attorneys were very clever and the prosecutor was not very clever. Thank you everybody for joining us. Shep, Lillian Faderman. Thank you, Lily. Thank uh, you. Uh, do you want to tell us uh, 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 the title of your book and where we can get it again? Yes, it's uh, Harvey Milk, His Lives and Death, and the publisher is Yale University Press. Wonderful. All right. Thank, thank you. you really. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. You're listening to WBAI 99.5. FM and WBAI.org. This is free speech radio. This is where you need to be listening. This is where you need to get your news. This is where you get the in-depth reporting. This is where you get the perspective that you can't get on other radio stations. You know you love WBAI. You know you've been listening. So please support us. Some of the ways you can support us for a pledge, a one-time pledge of $100, we have a wonderful package. We have books by Nouveau Zizan, The Pronoun Lowdown. We have Whose Right Is It? The Second Amendment and the Fight Over Guns by Hannah Baramvich. We have Grace Will Lead Us Home by Jennifer Barry Hawes, Pulitzer Prize winner. Call 212 2092950 and make a pledge of $100. One time, three books. Or go to give to wbai.org. That's 212 2092950 or go to give numeral 2 wbai.org and make your one time pledge of $100. 
for this package of books that you can give away. They're all beautiful hardcover books. You probably can't buy those books for that amount of money at Barnes and Noble. So do it now. Thanks. Those books, that package are only available for a one-time pledge of $100. But if you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag, we have some special entertainment offers for you. So listen up because Libby's going to tell you about it. A great way to support WBAI and Radio Gag is to become a BAI buddy. A BAI buddy is someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio show going by giving a small donation every month. This month, to the first person to become a BAI buddy with a minimum pledge of $20, we are offering a $40 gift certificate to cover the food and drink minimum in the cabaret room at Pangea in the East Village, where you can hear some of the top jazz and cabaret artists New York City has to offer. Help keep Radio Gag on the air by going to WBAI.org or calling 212-209-2950 to become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Thank you. To find out more about working with us, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at Gaze Against Guns New York on Facebook and Instagram or Gag No Guns on Twitter. Also, be sure to check out our website to learn more about our gag chapters located nationwide. And Jay reminded me the most important thing that you can do to support gun violence prevention stop all the killings and injuries caused by guns is to attend a Gays Against Guns meeting in person or virtually. But in person is a lot more fun, let's face it. And we are meeting every month in Manhattan at the LGBT Center on 13th Street. Our next meeting is December 16th, where we'll be planning all kinds of great action and protests. In fact, uh, last month we did a great action in Washington Square Park on transgender remembrance. We have been busy all this fall. Uh, we um, helped support uh, the Soulbox Project in uh, Washington, D.C. And now we're planning a great action on December 11th in the afternoon at Herald Square. So if you are in Herald Square, chances are you're going to see gag. <laughs> yeah, we'll be there in the afternoon. So uh, all are welcome to come to gag meetings. So bring your friends. Seriously, everybody is welcome at any and all times. Okay, all gag events. Thanks for listening. We're back next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. And chances are pretty good that once a month you're going to hear us at 2 p.m. And we're going to have some of these fabulous premiums available. 
don't forget, we interview the latest uh, authors, the leading lights in the gun violence prevention movement, and you will want to be listening to this show. So we leave you now with our fabulous political singing quartet, Sing Out Louise, with our favorite things. Bye now. <laughs> Live from the rumpus room. <laughs> Building a wall between churches and Congress. Making a choice between rightness and wrongness. Taking down tyrants who act like they're kings. These are a few of my favorite things. The right to gather and the First Amendment. Choices I'd rather and thoughts independent. Getting a lawyer when I'm in a fight. These are a few of my favorite rights. When the laws bend, when the feds cheat, and I'm feeling mad. I simply remember the Constitution, and then I don't feel so bad. Marching around when I'm angry with Congress, shouting them down to make them keep their promise, going to school feeling safe day and night. These are a few of my favorite rights. When the news sucks, when the jerks win, and I'm feeling mad. I simply remember the Constitution, and then I don't feel so bad. Buddy, it's Myra Slotnick from Gag P-Town, and I'm also a member of the Dramatist Guild. I am here to tell you about an action called Enough, Plays to End Gun Violence. Enough empowers teens to confront gun violence by creating new works of theater that will ignite critical conversation and inspire meaningful action, emboldening America's playwrights of tomorrow to discover and develop their voices today. Selected playwrights receive a $500 stipend that is sponsored by Change the Ref. They will have their plays published by Playscripts, receive memberships to the Dramatist Guild, and will be featured in our nationwide reading. The nationwide reading is on the anniversary of Columbine, April 20th, 2022. On that day, we invite theaters, schools, colleges, and other organizations to produce staged readings, either virtually or in person, of this year's plays for their community. Performed simultaneously across the country on the same night, these readings are part of an evening of reflection, dialogue, and action. For more information, please go to enoughplays.com. Thank you.